At Cambridge University Press and Assessment International Education, we deliver qualifications in more than 10,000 schools and in over 160 countries worldwide. Currently, we have opportunities for teachers to join us as assessment specialists in a wide variety of subjects at Cambridge IGCSE, O-Level and AS and A-Level. Assessment specialists cover a number of roles, including creating exam content, marking answers and moderating candidates' work. Our international reputation for excellence, fairness and reliability rests on the shoulders of assessment specialists. Becoming an assessment specialist is a great professional development opportunity. You will gain a powerful insight into the teaching and assessment of Cambridge qualifications, which you can use to inform your own teaching practice. Understanding exactly how an examination works and what the assessment process is will improve your own teaching in the classroom. With many different opportunities available, there is so much that we can offer. Visit www.cambridgeinternational.org forward slash examiners for more information. Hello there. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Green, who is an Associate Professor of Paleoclimates at the School of Geography, Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Birmingham. Welcome to JogPod, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. We can tell by your accent, actually, that you're, you're certainly not from Birmingham. No. <laughs> I think we might, we might do a little explore of later on. You're, you're listed as a paleoclimatologist, a geobiologist, an earth system modeler studying the biochemical cycling of carbon between the atmosphere, the ocean and the marine sediments. There's a lot to unpick there, some of which I don't perhaps understand. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did you get to that point? And, and the other thing I, I do have to ask, because I, I, I was uh, sort of trolling you on, uh, on the website, you've combined geological sciences and German. So you, you graduated from the University of Rochester with two degrees. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a sort of a strange career path, I guess. Um, so, unlike, well, I'm from the states, I guess. That's that's the first thing to say. That's where the accent's from. I grew up in New York City, and um, you know, unlike students here who are choosing what they want to study at A level, we're sort of taking all of our subjects all the way through high school, and then enrolling in a liberal arts university and sort of dabbling in courses until we figure out a degree. And so I ended up um, at an institution that I chose partially based on price and, and proximity to home and, and kind of what subjects they offered and just started taking classes to see what I liked. Um, so I was taking German and taking geology my first year and geology, you know, I, I sort of had an inkling about because I, I'd enjoyed like some little meteorology mini module in, in middle school. And ended up just just really sticking with both the whole time, and, and but choosing quite late in the day that you know I wanted to to do degrees in both, and um, yeah, because I was studying abroad, I was able to take some of my geology classes in German and sort of you know tick both boxes for both degrees with one course and squeeze it all in. But yeah, I guess because we decide so late in the day what it is that we want to study, um, for those of us that go on to do a PhD, you know, we're sort of maybe still guessing at that point what our interests are. And so for me, you know, I ended up applying for PhDs as soon as I heard that you got paid for them. Like I didn't know that. And so <laughs> I thought paleontology was where my interests um, were. And so I, I started a PhD in paleontology, but, um, you know, I, I didn't quite guess right about my interests. So I've kind of been meandering in between um, different fields ever since and just sort of been lucky with jobs and with um, funding that I've been able to stick around long enough to pick up some different skills. So. I mean, other people make really great careers by getting really good at one area and I just get bored. And so for me, the joy of sort of this area is being able to sort of pull in bits of chemistry, pull in bits of computer modeling, pull in field work and just use a bunch of different skills to kind of get at a question or, or make connections across disciplines. That's the joy for me in what I do. Now, if you were in England, you would have come through an education system where you'd have done geography first. You're not a... God, you've not come through that system. You, you don't do geography. No, I mean, I, so I guess we had like geography was part of, 
well, I thought it was a very narrow subject and it was a tiny little part of history um, in school where we literally had maps of countries, the world and filled out like the capitals and stuff. Like that was the extent of what I knew geography to be. And my first exposure to it being a thing over here was actually um, when I applied um, to my first position here and got a postdoc at the University of Bristol. And I was applying to work with somebody who I thought was sort of in my field. And he said, oh, by the way, we're in the School of Geographical Sciences. And I was kind of astonished. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my introduction to it was starting to work in a geography department and, and realizing that it was a subject unto itself. I mean, I guess I, I, none of the things that are done in that department were unfamiliar to me, but they were sort of all things that I would have siloed in other departments um, in the States. I think that's one of the problems with geography. And, and I think if the sequence of podcasts goes out the way they're going to go, Jill Miller will be following you, who was um, a past president of the Geographical Association. And, and her theme was geography matters. And she talked about how, in her view, and in our view as geographers, all students should do geography to understand at one end globalisation and our place in the world, but also the, the other end, the, the geology, the, the physical geography, the geomorphology, which we don't do much of in school here. You pick it up through your geography. Yeah, and I mean, in, in one sense, I'm probably like, possibly the least qualified academic in the geography department on this podcast because I've never had that experience of taking a geography class at sort of a school level so you know to comment on on what that experience is like or or you know I just I'm, I'm at a loss I have nothing to go on. I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit about this because as a as a geobiologist as a paleoclimatologist I would imagine and I haven't done the research on this this is naughty of me I would imagine that there are many more men than women in your field. Is that true? I would say for the most part. So um, I guess, um, yeah, my research kind of sits at, at, the, at the interface between what a geologist might do. So like look at rocks and sediments and stuff, what a chemist might do, you know, literally you know, measuring what chemistry in the lab and what a biologist might do. That might be a bit about understanding evolution, but also could be about microbes. Um, so geobiology is, is kind of microbe rock interactions. Um, and those different subfields have different um, sort of gender balance. And the more towards biology, the more gender balanced it seems to be, um, the more towards sort of the chemistry side of things, um, it seems to be um, more imbalanced. But of course, like most of these subjects, the further you go up the sort of hierarchical ladder within academia, the more male dominated it becomes. So yeah, it's, it's a male dominated space. Mm. There's um... A, a bit of a debate going on at the moment because uh, Catherine Verbalsing, who's the uh, social mobility head, I don't know if you if you caught yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> Girls mm. dislike hard maths, um, so they don't do physics, but they tend towards biology. Yeah, she's telling more on herself there, isn't she, than she is about uh, anything else. I mean, it's 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 nonsense, um, and there's lots of good research about it um, to to know why it is that girls don't necessarily pick those subjects and it's because of messages like that, that it isn't for you that get reinforced. I mean, as far as I understand, there's sort of um, equal, roughly equal levels of interest at early ages that then diverge sort of as they start to internalize those messages. Um, really tragic that she's in that position because um, she's so wholly uninformed. I, I'd like you to explain a few terms then. It's yeah. interesting because most people who are listening are, are geography teachers. But I think our students would generally tend towards the, the physical side of geography. So maybe they'd be taking geography and physics or like my youngest son did. He did geography and geology when he still could. So I, I, was, I thought that paleoclimatology might be an area that A-level students would recognise, but I'm not even sure about that. So could you tell us what paleoclimatology means? And what a, a ge what's the difference between that and a geobiologist? So paleoclimates is probably the core of what I do. Geobiology is like sort of a little side set of side projects. And paleoclimates is just the study of past climates. So all we're doing is looking at the rock record, not 
not just to, to, to see what kind of rock it is or anything, but to try to find sedimentary sequences of rocks that encode information about what the climate was like in the past, um, or to use computer models to simulate that climate in the past. So it's all about understanding what past climates were like, what controlled them, um, how the climate changed through time. And one of the main purposes is to provide some like historical context for um, what we're experiencing today and what we might experience in the future. So, I mean, it, it encompasses all sorts of techniques, but it's just about understanding the climate of the past um, versus geobiology. Um, and this is one of these subfields that I've, I sort of dabble in and, and do do a bit of work in. It's about um, the mostly microbial interactions with rocks and sediments. So it could be anything uh, you know, people who, who would call themselves ge geobiologists could really be microbiologists that are sort of studying extreme environments and how those microbes might interact in, in, with the rocks and the sediments in like a hot spring or the deep subsurface. But it can also be a geologist who's trying to understand how microbes um, helped construct a particular rock in the past. So you might be looking for signs of life, like what are the signs that a microbe was involved here um, to understand sort of life history as well. So geobiology is not as, uh, it's really straightforward. It's biologists who are asking geological questions and geologists are asking biological questions, trying to meet in the middle. I want to come back to that because there's some interesting, there's some interesting areas we explore between the, the cycling of carbon and, uh, and, and uh, system modeling. But before we go there, what I picked up on when, when I was talking to Dr. Natasha Dowie was some work that you've been involved with on field work which I thought was fascinating, particularly at the moment, because of some of the, the problems that we're facing, the Geographical Association has highlighted in the, in the Times Ed, about teachers who've missed out on the fieldwork experience and are, are, are quite unconfident about setting up a fieldwork experience for students. And when I looked at your paper, there are, there are so many interesting points that provide a real clear checklist for what you should be thinking about to make sure that your fieldwork is inclusive and effective. Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. You were going to I wonder if you could... It, it, it did involve 20 authors, didn't it? It was a checklist like that. for educators. Yeah. It was really for, for higher education, but there's so much that we could pick out as teachers for for what we might use in, in primary and secondary when we're planning fieldwork. Yeah, I'm really glad that there's um, stuff that translates. I mean, um, so I guess the origin of this is that it came from discussions we were having internally at the University of Birmingham in our, in our school, mostly in the earth sciences group um, between staff, postgraduates um, and undergraduate students about the ways in which field work, you know, can be, can be really um, uncomfortable, or I, I guess it's that you're taking people out of their normal day-to-day -day routines and their normal day-to-day -day settings. You know, as a field instructor, you're sort of planning for other people whose identities you don't share and whose experiences you don't share. And so it was just kind of a, a list that was born of all of our uncomfortable, poor experiences, trying to like cobble together, you know, what could we do to, to suggest things to make it better. So it started internally, and then I ended up adding a whole bunch of um, external authors as well, some of whom were from slightly different disciplines, so more geographers to make sure that what we were saying wasn't unique to our geology discipline, um, but then also um, people who had particular identities that were sort of underrepresented in the author list. So what it comes down to is sort of a list that um, you know people could use to inform themselves about the way in which identities that they don't have might be affected by the way they're planning the field trip. So it's just a white paper. It's not like a, a pedagogical piece of research. It's just our experiences collectively sort of poured into one document. And I guess to me, the important thing um, isn't so much the checklist, but just I hope that somebody who would read it would get an idea of how to think about planning field work differently, because we're, we're not just telling you, here's what you should do. We're kind of explaining why, like what is the identity you know, that, that would find that the default way we do things difficult and why and what's a workaround. So just a way to sort of think about the planning as if there were all identities there, as opposed to you know, retrofitting something when somebody presents a problem to you. It, it did make me think, and it, it made me reflect on when I first started doing field work as a young teacher, because I love the outdoors and it's great. And what is there not to like? 
and it'll mm. be fantastic. We'll have a walk down the river and we'll do this and we'll do that. And then not really giving it a thought to some of the some of the students who might not be able to walk that far, who might have other yeah. issues. In a school in a mining community where they were almost entirely white, working class, there wasn't sort of ethnic issues either that I needed ever at the time when I first started to think about it. But it, it did make me, it really made me stop and think, well, wow, I wish I'd had that because I, I just hadn't even crossed my mind. Well, so did I. I mean, I've run field trips before I wrote this thing and I think back on the mistakes that I made. Um, but I guess part of it for me was was informed by that experience of coming from New York City where, you know, I did not have much experience with the outdoors. And those first field trips for me were quite frightening. Um, I didn't know anything about kit. I didn't like I'd never been on hikes or anything. So and particularly, you know, for women um, or for people who squat to urinate, like thinking about how to take care of that outdoors for the first time in front of other people. Um, I mean, I enjoyed a lot about it. I really did enjoy the field work and I still do, but um, I got the sense that I was having to deal with anxieties that other people weren't. And so this was, you know, a collective of, of all those individualized experiences in one place. So, yeah, I think um, one of the things I would say about it is it's a really long checklist and some people find that sort of intimidating and off-putting, but because there's so much to do to get it right and you start to realize how many things you've gotten wrong and that makes you feel bad but we're all sort of works in progress when it comes to, to EDI to me and like while it's hard or, or impossible to create a field trip that is going to um, be completely inclusive for everybody it's really not hard to do a bit better than you did last time I think there's lots of little nuggets that you know even if you only take a few things from it you might find you're doing a bit better when I first started the Geographical Association, they asked me to go on the radio. So I was a bit intimidated by that, um, doing that sort of stuff I'd never done before. And it was talking about fieldwork. And they were saying, oh, yeah, it'll be comfortable. It was Radio 5 Live. I'd, I'd done local radio, but not Radio 5 Live. And uh, they said oh, it would be fine. And then as I got ready to go on, they were talking to somebody from the health and safety. And they'd said to her, is there a problem with with health and safety and she was saying oh no 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 there's, there's not there had been in schools but she said not so then they they turned to me and said well right then so it's just lazy geography teachers then what do you think of that was almost the the, the spin that they put on just to be controversial really well, there's tons of health and safety stuff i mean it, it's it's so much harder than classroom in terms of that um to me and identity plays a big role in that i mean this isn't my insight, you know, we were cited, there's a lot of literature we cite in that white paper um, about the ways in which identity can make the, the same field trip dangerous for one person that isn't, you know, dangerous for the, the field trip lead who maybe um, has a particular identity that's uh, usually quite overprivileged because that's the people who end up staying um, on to become, you know, academics or maybe in your case teachers. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a big deal if you don't think about identity in, in planning for that health and safety. Um, everything from, you know, in my home country, thinking about, you know, leaving, say, a black student to be working on their own on an outcrop on the side of the road where you know, it's, it's a heavily police state where they, they really could face some difficulties if a cop decided to ask what they were doing and, and you know, treated them quite abysmally. So you need to take precautions there um, versus, you know, we still think about while well, we're still in discussions in our department about whether it's appropriate to take um, students to um the United Arab Emirates, where we have a satellite campus now in Dubai, um, and it's criminalized. Um, lots of lots of LGBTQ identities are criminalized there. Um, so yeah, identity really does matter in that health and safety. It's a much bigger thing than I think um, you realize if you've um, tick most of the privileged identity boxes where you don't have to think about these things. You did say there was a long list, and there is, um, and it could be quite intimidating, I suppose, unless you you use it in the right way. So how do you stop it being an intimidating list? As I read it, I wasn't intimidated, but it certainly pushed me to be thinking, oh, crikey, I didn't, I didn't think of that. Oh, I didn't think of that. Or that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have an answer for how not to be intimidated other than to say we all have to start somewhere. 
it's easy to make a few changes to make things better. And it will just, just I think just accepting that it's going to be a constant work in progress. If, if you decide that this is something you care about really getting right, it'll just be iterative. And every field trip you run, you'll realize the things that you didn't do great last time. Um, and maybe have another look back at a, at a paper like our checklist and think about ways to improve it. But I guess there were just also some sort of big category topics that we had as well. And you know, one of them, for example, is just giving the students lots of information and giving it to them early so that there's time for them to understand what that itinerary is going to look like and say something if it's not going to work for them, you know. So there were a lot of little bitty things around that, but that's quite sort of a, a big picture, easy, easy win to show them the accommodation, to tell them about what the travel is going to be like um, and to put things in. I don't know if you have field guides when you're when you're teaching at school, but we give them a field guide of what the trip is going to be and, you know, tell them which stops have a lot of walking or, you know, where the nearest toilet is or, or what time lunch will be. Just a lot of that kind of giving information early and opening yourself up to, to questions. Um, that's half the checklist right there, actually. Yes, that's right. And I think not just children, the parents get, with smaller children anyway, the parents get concerned. What are, mm. what are they going to be in with? Um, I've just been reading a, I think it was on Twitter, but it was just an exchange where they took all the phones off the children. Oof. And one of the children had, uh, had got her phone back again. I don't know how she'd managed to, to wangle that. And phoned her parents and they'd come and picked her up the next day. So the the discussion was split about whether the parents should have done that, whether the school was right to take all the, the phones off everybody. Because you sort of, with little children, you sometimes get a sort of hysteria develops. One of them wants to go and then they all want to go home. And part of that might be that you haven't told the parents in advance enough of quite what they're going to expect when they get there and what we're going to expect as teachers, why we don't want them to have their phone. I mean, I, I wouldn't dream of telling like your listeners who are actually trained in pedagogy, whereas I'm not like what the right thing to do there is. But like the sense that we got from the authors on this checklist, a number of whom um, are, for example, uh, neurodivergent um, or suffer from anxiety um, generally, is that you know, just more information is going to help with a lot of those problems more not over overloading people, but making that information available, whether, whether it works the same with little students um, and with parents, I, I would think it cannot hurt to provide them with, with that information. Um, managing small kids, <laughs> well out of my expertise, struggle enough when they're 18. <laughs> One of the points that you do make as geographers or, or as as people with subjects that in need like geography, but aren't quite, or could have come from geography, but you're American, so they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> is you in the paper you say that field teaching is highly valued across geography. It's across the earth and the environmental sciences, and it has demonstrable positive outcomes for learning. So why do you feel that? What's the evidence for that? Well, it's not anything that I've demonstrated, you know. If you, if you look at the end of that sentence, there's a few papers, a few citations. And I mean, like I said, I'm not a pedagogy researcher, but the papers that I've read, you know, I think there's quite a, a long history of documenting that there's um, positive learning outcomes for, for seeing things for hands-on. And, but from a, like, just from a, a subjective um, point of view of somebody who's teaching it, to me, one of the big advantages is actually the, the cohort bonding um, and the chance to sort of engage with lecturers outside of a really stiff formal classroom setting. It, it becomes more relaxed and conversational. And um, I think that the learning that happens with the conversations that are happening, as opposed to sort of like a very strict exercise in a lab or, or a lecture in a classroom, to me, that's, that's subjectively without you know, any evidence, one of the, the really best parts about it. But I would say the flip side is I do think, at least in earth sciences, that fieldwork can be a bit sort of almost fetishized as like the thing that we need to care about um, with pedagogy. And like, it's totally central and people make like really hyperbolic statements about that. And to me, somebody who's mostly doing like coding and computer modeling these days, it's, it's just one of the tools that we use to learn about the natural world. And that could be wet chemistry, that could be coding, that could be field work. So, you know, lab, desk, or field. And to me, it's just important that 
students are exposed to all of those so that they can figure out which ones they enjoy, which ones are working for them. Um, so to me, like the, the, op the opportunity to get involved in the field, like I guess what I'm saying is not every, not every geologist or geoscientist or a scientist needs to be a field geologist, but I think it's right that everybody has some experience with it. It makes us better modelers if we understand where our data comes from, for example, even if we never you know, collect primary data out in the field again. So I think it's useful for all the end career paths to see a little bit of like where the raw data comes from to get a feel for that. We often talk about the messiness of it, the messiness yeah. of geography. Textbooks are not messy. They give you a, a perfect example and that's what it always looks like. And then when you get out into the field and it doesn't work like that. It's funny you say that because I, I hear the opposite actually amongst my colleagues sometimes that they say that it only makes sense the first time when you see it in the field. And I, I'm with you. I think the, the field shows the limitations of the textbook. Yes, it's, um, they don't look like the textbook. They don't act like the textbook quite oh. often. We have student, we, uh, Jill and I actually were just talking about this because we've spent a bit of time on field work together. But um, if you go and do a river study and you try and fit a textbook model to something that teachers can do within half a day, three quarters of a day, you can't really get an analysis of that change because there are too many other variables. And yeah. then students try and fit it to a long profile model or to a Bradshaw model. And then they think they're wrong. And so they criticize themselves. And then that makes the field work difficult. Oh, I did it wrong. When actually it's about interrogating it in, and I'm sure geology must be just the same. I, I looked at Hutton's unconformity on Aaron. I couldn't work out what was going on. Yeah. But that's the good example, actually. Like, that's the textbook example. It gets worse from there with geology. Yes, I know. <laughs> I was looking at it. Well, how, how did he extrapolate that from this? Hmm. It's, uh, it does make you think differently doing fieldwork, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I mean, the feedback from our students is, is by and large that they really enjoy that. Um, I don't know if it's different at the school level where, you know, as you say, the, the frustrations of like thinking that they got it wrong. Um, maybe there's a slightly different expectation at university where we're sort of setting it up differently and, and, and talking about those limitations. Um, but I think it's important in school that they know that uh, things are different and that yeah. there are challenges. Too often we, I, I can't generalize this, but too often, exams demand children have the right answer yeah and it isn't always like that and I, well, we noticed that when they arrive at university <laughs> 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 the struggle to break free from that thinking um yeah but we want them to pass the exam we want them to be able to get to university in the first place as teachers so we will school them in what might be the right answer yeah um i, I do remember this was a piece of physical geography but um I remember not long after I started teaching, we'd been doing, we went to Aaron for our field work and we'd been doing glaciation and they, they'd seen it once in the field, but I don't think we made a big deal of it. And then there was, there was a, a question with an arete on it and a, a corrie and it wasn't the one in the textbook and they didn't recognise it. So oh. I was saying to them when they came out of the exam, this is wonderful. Did you answer that question? Full marks for that one. Yeah. Oh, was that what it was? We didn't know it was an arete. Oh, dear. Yeah, you need about, you know, 20 different search images to start to, it's almost like, you know, the n equals one is not enough to, to, to really see any of that. We need a, uh, and that, you know, maybe says something about the, the need for a certain, you know, quantity of field work um, as part of that training, that it's not just enough to see one of something, to then be able to extrapolate what about that individual feature was important or characteristic. You just don't have enough of a search image um, to, to really tune your eye in. I do like what you said about students feeling they belong and creating that sense of, of belonging when they're, mm. they're on a, a field trip together. I should say it's limited, right? Like some students really say that, um, but there was a piece of work that um, I think is due to be published soon that one of uh, the human geography postgraduates did um, in interviewing our undergraduates, um, particularly focusing on those um, from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds. 
about their experiences um, in the school because it is a, a very white school across all subjects, um, just the same way as, as um, that for the, the same subjects across sort of the whole university spectrum. We're not unusual in that, it's, it's just what it is. So it shows, she did a lot of interviews and one of the things that did pop out um, was those feelings of isolation, particularly on field work for some of those students who were the only or one of very few of whichever um, identity on that field trip. So, so they were not feeling part of a cohort. Um, and, and that's something that we did try to weave in a little bit into the white paper with suggestions about how to extend that belonging um, beyond just those who make up the majority group. Can we um, put a link to that with the podcast? I will check if it's published. Um, if not, it'll have to be one of those uh, uh, TBD links. Um, I, I knew, I think it was in press or something last I checked, but I'm not sure if it's out. But I, we might be able to provide um, a copy of the school report um, where she, she sort of did a, um, a shorter version for like our internal report. How do you overcome those sorts of barriers? What, I'm, I'm imagining that we get the students together beforehand. We do an exploration of, of some of the, the issues. I don't know, how, how would you challenge some of those barriers that students have got? Well, we've talked quite about a bit about this. And, you know, I think um, we want to make, so, so as a member of staff who's like, you know, much older than the students and not really part of their social group, like there's, a, there's limited things that I can do to, to make that socialization better. But what we thought that we can do is to introduce what these issues are beforehand in some of the pre-field trip briefings, um, being very careful not to single anyone out or ask them or, or you know, make them feel exposed in that conversation, but to sort of challenge the whole group to say, you know, here are some of the issues, um, what can you as individuals do? Um, and, and have them sort of feed into ideas about this for, for making sure that that cohesion happens. Um, and that was one of the ideas that we came up with, um, just to make them aware of, of the problem and their own, and challenge them to identify their own role in making things better. Teachers might have more <laughs> to offer than I do on that one. You also get the students beforehand, don't you, to, to feed in any of their concerns beforehand? Uh, yeah, so we, we discussed this, uh, well, I should say, you're asking a pragmatic question, do I, when, when I haven't taught on a field trip since I wrote the paper. Um, so some of this is still a work in progress and implementation for me. Yeah, um, so we hold pre-briefings, pre-field trip briefings, um, and there's some suggestions in there about, you know, it used to be that they were just about the itinerary, and now we try to, to, to fold in a lot of the topics that are, that are mentioned in this white paper, and to get them to sort of, not just that there's like a top-down code of conduct or a list of expectations, but that they sort of co-create what those are with us and sort of agree with them, um, and then they feel a bit more ownership, hopefully, about you know why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so challenging them, you know, to to think about group work differently, or to, in selecting their groups, um, or selecting who they're gonna they're they're gonna house with, like just making them aware of these sorts of things that they can hopefully be partners with us in making things better. Yeah, you know, that's that's just the limited toolkit that we could think of. I'm sure there's probably more to be done apart from just what we were able to brainstorm as a bunch of academics with no <laughs> pedagogy training whatsoever. I think it's a good idea. I, I, I'm thinking back again to trips that I ran. And when we ran the ski trips, we had a lot of meetings. We went through a lot of concerns and there were lots of issues we, mm. which we had to think about, whether somebody broke a leg or, or, or something more difficult, more dangerous than that or worse than that. But we didn't do it so much for for geography field trips, partly because we didn't have the time um, and we yeah. felt bad. So time's an issue for teachers, but, but yeah. like the idea of, of going through and this is where we're going, this is what it looks like, this is what your, what your expectations are. Yeah, I can understand that time might be an issue. I think if there's a field guide that has a lot of information and just one presentation that sort of guides them through the itinerary, a lot of the follow-up questions end up getting taken care of by themselves by doing that. So, you know, we did talk about all the things that could go into a field guide and it's gonna be quite labor intensive the first time one tries to put all this information in the field guide to make sure that's all there, but, you know, we'll be rewarding on previous trips um, because, you know, there's all sorts of things that people are going to be worried about and they, 
they prefer not to tell you about their personal problems and their bum leg or they're worried about, you know, the bathroom and their irritable bowel syndrome. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about any of the things that they're worried about in their anxieties and share them with the teacher for the most part. They just want to know how to take care of themselves. Um, so a lot of that, I would hope, a lot of those questions end up being something that they can manage themselves if they're just given access to enough of the information about the logistics and the itinerary combined with a really just open approach to, you know, what are the what about this isn't going to work for you? Just tell me and we'll, we'll work it out. Well, I'm looking forward to that coming out. I think that'll be that'll be really interesting to see. Um, it's You know, maybe we'll have version two of this paper down the road if we start to find that we don't agree with a lot of our suggestions. It's, well, it's I think it'll be really interesting. That, it, 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 I started by saying it was a concern. It is. We've um, the Geographical Association working with schools to to run a national field week, um, and that'll be on the sixth, the eleventh of June. So there's a there's a chunk of the GA website, and the RGS are also promoting field work. The Royal Geographical Society. There's going to be a section on the GA website with guidance to help new teachers who have highlighted their concerns over field work because they've not done it before. Some, some of them haven't even gone on a field trip themselves. So not since they were at school. So they haven't got the experience, certainly, oh. of, of setting one up. And it's such a long time since they've been on one. So anything that we can add to that section on the GA website that helps teachers just think differently, I think, would be useful. And it certainly made me think differently. I, uh, I enjoyed reading it, even though you're right. <laughs> it's a long paper. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. It's not technical, though, and I think it's an easy read. Well, emotionally, not, maybe not easy, but uh, linguistically easy. Well, it's not because I, I kept challenging myself and thinking, oh, my God, I didn't thought of that either. <laughs> and then there was, a, there was a little bit that you wrote somewhere. I, I probably lost it now. I, I made a little note. Oh, yeah. I just hoped that, that when I was in my early 20s, I wasn't one of these people with a a toxically masculine toughen up culture of fieldwork. And I was thinking, oh God, I hope that wasn't me. I hope I wasn't that bad. I would say to everybody, let go of the guilt and just accept that we all have growth to do. There's no point in in worrying about, you know, how how well or poorly you've done. Focus the energy on what you might change for next time because you can do next time. That's a real good message for this for this fieldwork week. Because we're not trained to think about, well, I don't know about you all, but we are not trained to think about this. It's all new territory for us. And somehow my colleagues at university seem to feel that it's a character flaw if they don't get EDI right just by gut instinct. And like, like that makes them a bad person because they somehow did something that was sexist or racist or, or ableist, whatever. Uh, it, it's it's hard to get it right and so just it, it, it takes a while to get there to just accept that you're going to get things wrong and accept that that doesn't make you a bad person what makes you a bad person is if you don't care <laughs> to try to do better well there's the advantage of our messy field work because it doesn't work doesn't mean you've not got it wrong it just means you need to rethink and getting students to rethink all the time and yeah. reconsider and and come up with a new scenario a new answer i think is uh, is the best we can do. Right. I want to return to your specialisms because um, it's just fascinating the way <laughs> you, it's it's Come on, sell the carbon cycle for me. Great. <laughs> it's impressively cross-discipline, I have to say. Very stupidly. <laughs> you did mention this at the beginning, because uh, you, so you started out as a paleontologist. Yeah. You moved towards geochemistry. Yeah. And then you you transitioned into into climate modeling yeah but you still dabble in all three yeah and at the moment your research is or at least one is rapid carbon cycle perturbations yeah tell me what it means so these are um events in earth's past in which um well just basically they're partially analogous to what we're doing today events where there's um a disruption of the global carbon cycle, usually it's carbon emissions to the atmosphere, carbon dioxide or methane. So the idea is we're trying to identify past events that share some similarities with what we're doing today to understand what are the effects of putting a load of carbon into the atmosphere quite quickly. That's what it comes down to. So the end of the Triassic would be an example. I've got that right while you're around. Yeah, you? so um, I yeah. guess a number of the events that we... Cretaceous, isn't it? 
Well, so a number of the events that we might think about as partial analogs also happen to be mass extinction events. So the one at the end of the Triassic, the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction is a big carbon cycle perturbation. There was a big slug of carbon added to the atmosphere and that was from massive continental scale volcanism um, quite quickly. The one at the end of the Cretaceous that you're thinking of, the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Yes, there was some volcanism happening in the background, but really that one was the one caused by the giant um, extraterrestrial impact. So there is some perturbation to the carbon cycle, but it's quite a different mechanism um, and actually instantaneous in that sense because of the giant impact. But yeah, so a number of these are, are mass extinctions. The end Permian mass extinction as well, which is um, sometimes called like the great dying in the literature because that's the biggest mass extinction of all. Again, massive continental scale volcanism. And that one, for example, um, so the carbon, where is the carbon coming from? It's partially that there's carbon CO2 in magma. So as that crystallizes, the gas is what's called exsolved. So it's emitted um, out to the atmosphere. But sometimes these giant volcanic things happen in a place where there happens to be um, rocks around that also contain carbon. And in the case of like the end Permian, this, this mass dying, the volcanism happened um, in Siberia where there was a bunch of coal around. And so you're literally cooking the coal and releasing even more CO2. So yeah, there's really strong analogs um, in terms of process to what we're doing today. Although what we're doing today is much quicker than any of these past events. They're much slower releases of carbon compared to what we're doing. I don't think when I was at school, I ever knew anything about the mass extinctions. Mm. And then I found out that they'd been one and I thought, oh, blimey, this is, this is impressive. Actually, there've been lots, haven't there? Yeah, I mean, there, there's um, a lot of extinction events in our history. There's sometimes five that are picked out as sort of the big five, but you know, where do you draw the line is slightly. Um, in the eyes of the beholder. Certainly um, the end Permian is the biggest of all um, and the end Triassic and the end Cretaceous are up there in the top five. And there's also a couple that are a bit earlier and because they're earlier in the, in the Devonian and the Ordovician Silurian, we have maybe less good records of them because there's less rock hanging about that we can read to tell the stories um, and it, it's more altered, but, but yeah, there's the big five. But there are also other events um, that are not mass extinctions but that are big carbon release events. Um, so some of those we also can study to understand a bit more about the process um, of what happens to the earth when you release a lot of carbon. And you get a lot of environmental effects that are really similar to what we see today. So um, deoxygenation or loss of oxygen in the oceans, um, ocean acidification, global warming, quite obviously. Um, changes in what's being um, weathered on land and the runoff that comes from the rivers into the oceans. So there's different stuff coming into the oceans, which then can include nutrients and cause sorts of you know, blooms and loss of oxygen. I mean, there's all sorts of parallels. Um, so there are events, none of them is, is a perfect analog for what we're doing today, but by studying all of them, you sort of piece together um, quite a bit that's relevant to what we're doing right now. Up until very recently, I don't, there's not so much of it, I don't think now, but up until very recently, when, when there was reporting about climate change, there was always the climate change scientist, and then there'd be somebody else on the other side in, in oh. the country. It would be somebody like Dominic Lawson who, said, who would say, no, there's no problem. Yeah. How do you challenge those? I, I don't know whether that's just a ridiculously silly question now, but how do you challenge the people who are still climate change deniers? Uh, it's, it is a tough one. Um, I, I don't really bother because there, there's, I mean, Catherine Hayhoe is a, is a scientist that I would recommend looking into, um, who's an American who's really at the forefront of thinking about um, climate communication. And there's, there's really very few people that are in this sort of hardcore motivated denial kind of place. Um, and she's got a bunch of videos of, you know, instructional videos about um, strategies for, for talking to people that are actually more serious about wanting to learn a bit more. Um, but like, I, I just don't view it as really productive to engage with that person on, a, on an equal platform. So I just sort of opt out. I'm more interested in talking to people that um, want to understand more. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe it's not right for me to opt out, um, but you only have so much emotional energy for the day. It's Yeah, and it's hard to get a perspective really. If, if you look on social media, then you're talking about a, a bunch of people who, who social media manages to bring together who'd be 
pretty much isolated otherwise. They, there's a, a, a strength in, in bringing them together as far as they will see as social media. And it's like the flat earthers, I suppose. I mean, I don't think that's actually where the, I guess the sticky debates are that I see at the moment happening um, in these spaces. It's less between people who don't agree that it's there and people that do, that, that don't believe in climate change and do, and more on the, the policy fronts about like what this actually means, what we should do about it. Um, those are where the stickier debates are these days, thankfully. I, I also wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned it, ocean acidification, because I think mm. this is a I think this is a tricky one. And you've written a couple of papers on this. I think it's hard for, for geography teachers who aren't who aren't scientists and haven't gone through a science background to understand what's going on there. Yeah. And I think um, firstly, I would say to them sympathies <laughs> because it, it is just um, one of those topics that I think is quite easy to, to confuse yourself about because the chemistry is, 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 is a challenge. But at its base level, when you add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, um, some of it is going to dissolve in the ocean, a big proportion actually. And that CO2 dissolving in the ocean affects the ocean pH and makes it lower. That's essentially what acidification is. Um, and, you know, I guess one thing I could offer um, maybe for teachers is I've, we developed um, a couple of years back a classroom experiment to kind of show this, um, which I've like taken to science fairs and stuff where you can take um, some water, probably deionized water works better than tap water and dye it with pH indicator, put it in a little um, test tube with like a rubber bung with some holes on top and attach a straw. And you can literally blow the CO2 from your mouth into the headspace of that um, test tube and create uh, an enhanced CO2 atmosphere in the test tube, which then propagates into the water and changes the pH and changes the color from the pH indicator. You can see it happening right there. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really um, well understood physical process that's happening today. Um, and I guess the reason it's important is because um, a lot of marine life um, is affected by the pH of the waters that they're living in. Um, so for fisheries, for example, um, it's a really important question, but really for all sort of open ocean ecosystems too. And that's different from the temperature that's causing um, the bleaching of, of coral reefs, or is, there, or is, it, inter, is it interconnected? Um, well, there are two different processes. The temperature is from the greenhouse effect, right? So that's from the CO2 in the atmosphere. The acidification is from the chemical effects of the CO2 dissolved in the water but they do work in concert today, right? So they're, they're both being driven by the same thing, which is adding CO2 to the atmosphere. And it's the same with some of these paleo events that I've talked about. They're happening in tandem, um, the pH change and the, the temperature change. Um, and so for the example, coral reefs, I think both are, are affecting them. Um, the, I think the bleaching is more to do with temperature than the pH change, but the pH change really matters for them um, uh, struggling with building their skeletons, for example or maintaining them because their skeletons are made of um, calcium carbonate or limestone. And that's a mineral that's really quite sensitive in, in terms of like, what are the metabolic costs to a little coral polyp to build their skeleton? The metabolic costs change quite a bit when um, the pH is lower, makes it more challenging. Well, right, here's a difficult question as we, as we <laughs> towards the end. How shall I phrase this? How confident do you feel about the future of, of us managing it and of, oh. what do you see? Um, yeah, I think um, it's a difficult one. I, and I, I think about this quite a bit when I lecture about climate change, like what is the message that I want students to leave with? And I don't want them to come away with an overly rosy view of, of where we are and where we're headed. I think things are not in a great place, but on the other hand, um, I don't want to leave them in a place where it's, or the listeners for that example, uh, for that matter, um, in a place where they're sort of nihilistic and like, well, we're totally screwed. You know, there's no point in doing anything because I guess I view climate change as a, a really incremental problem and every increment kind of matters. So there's more harm that's baked in, which is really upsetting and unfortunate, but there's also more harm that could be reduced. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's uncertainty about how much harm we're gonna cause. Individually, we might not have that much power, but collectively we do. I think um, 
I guess that's the other thing I would say is that, you know, when I was training in these fields, we tried to keep politics very separate from the, the science that we were doing and really just say, well, this is about the physics. You know, we're just going to explain the physics of climate change to people and politics is somebody else's job. You know, what are the policies going to be? And I think really got that wrong, you know, a decade or two ago in our training. And we really need to be um, thinking about our role in, in policy much more um, carefully because we know the physical science now, it, it, like it's not, there's no questions there, but like, and we know that carbon foot, like individual carbon footprint kind of answers aren't gonna, aren't gonna like get us out of this. So we need to be really thinking quite carefully about what the message is about what students should take away from these discussions. And it should be somewhere in between like bad and hope. Like both of those things have to be in that conversation. Things are bad, but there's hope because we have choices. We still have power to dictate how bad things get. That's interesting because I was on one of the podcasts talking to a student activist and she was talking about the importance of getting that message of both the politics and the science across to young people her age and, and just making sure that they understand. And it's, it's more difficult when you go into a, a recession and there are problems because people are thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay the gas bill? How am I going to pay the electricity bill? And everything sort of closes in a little bit and we stop looking globally and thinking, oh, just a minute, we all ought to be acting together on this one. But you've left us with a, a message of, of hope <laughs> in, a, in a bit of a difficult time. Something like that. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say that I feel hopeful um, because I think that's a bit disingenuous, but um, I feel like there is no choice but to hold on to that little bit of hope that we have because otherwise we give up on, on um, trying to make things better. And the nihilism is, is counterproductive. Yes, it might be realistic um, to an extent, but it's really counterproductive to have that as the the only the only thing in the back of your mind. Things can always get better, but they can always get worse. We have, we have that control. <laughs> no, no, we'll finish on. We'll finish on. <laughs> Things can always get better. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I mean, that's wrong from a physical climate perspective. They are going to get worse before they get better. We've baked in a lot more harm that is yet to come. How much worse is up to us? <laughs> okay. Well, dear me. <laughs> and, you know, this is, I guess, one of the reasons that I don't do a lot of uh, outreach talks, because it's really exhausting to live in that space of really confronting where we are. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say to that one. <laughs> no, either. <laughs> I really do want to end it on a high. Geology is wonderful. How's that? Um... <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> That's my pitch is that uh, uh, I guess uh, to end things, maybe people who think of themselves as physical geographers in the US, they'd actually be geologists or scientists. It's been fascinating. <laughs> it's a little bit depressing towards the oh, end. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. So thanks very much for having me. Um, and yeah, I hope something of that is, is of interest to the listeners. So.